Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, May 29th, 2022, we continue our series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Unquestionable Sovereignty, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 29. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. You see, we start to sit here and we say to ourselves, but Jeff, I mean, there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of people who do good things for this world and they don't know Jesus. Paul has already addressed this when he said to us in Romans 3 that there's no one who's righteous, there's no one who seeks God, there's no one who does good. No, not even one. We got to stop comparing ourselves to the person next door. It's not about keeping up with the Joneses. It's about glorifying God through faith in his holiness, in his perfection, because that's the only thing that will allow you to enter into his presence, to stare him in the eyes as holy and blameless because he put his sovereign election upon you. The question you should be asking It's quite simply, out of 7.8 billion people in this world walking this earth today, why in the world did God set his affection upon you? And what are you doing about it? He gave you this incredible gift, not so you can take it and hide it under a bushel. That light is for the world, to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, to set other people free because they too are the seed of Isaac. They are the ones that God has chosen. None will escape his hand. None will be lost. All will be saved that God has set his purpose and his plan upon. This morning is really all about trust. That's where the passage is going to take us. Can we trust in God even if we don't understand everything? Because I'm just going to give you the the punchline here early on. God is not going to give you all of the answers to make everything make complete sense right now. It will not happen. It's the promise even in the scriptures. He's not going to do that. There'll come a day when you stand before him 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that that we'll know even as we're known. Everything will make complete sense. But for right now, I have to trust. I look at his track record. I look at what he did sending his son. Do I trust? Can I trust him? That certainly was the issue for the Jews of the first century that Paul is writing to here. They were the people of God. They were given the prophets. They were given the laws. They were, they were given all these things. But why is it then that so many of them turned away and did not you know, receive Christ, but then said they, they turned away completely from him? How does that work? The context here is one of sovereignty. Sovereignty is one of the five main themes of the book of Romans. Other people may have more, but I have five, so that's what we're going with. The themes are, begins, the book of Romans begins with the issue of sin. You know, it talks about the fact that really what Paul's trying to accomplish here is, is, is to help us understand that you, you sort of got to get a man or a woman lost before you can get them found. That was a real problem because people in that time, particularly, you know, the Jews of that time thought, well, we're keeping the law, we're doing all the right things. They didn't understand that inherently, even in keeping the law, you and I can be sinners. They were, in fact, sinners. 
Then after that, and it, that took a, a couple of months to get through that part right there, then we got into salvation and the fact that we're saved by grace through faith, you know, alone. I mean, we're not saved by our actions. And then you move to the point where you talked about sanctification. And sanctification is simply the fact that God has not only declared you righteous, and so, you know, he's, he's chosen you before the foundation of the world, and he's already, you know, promised glory for you in heaven. But even right now, as we walk in this life, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you to help you become like his son. That's sanctification. That's followed by sovereignty and followed after that by servanthood, which, by the way, should be really interesting because when we get to servanthood, when we get to that issue in, in Romans chapter 12 through the end of that will be about... Uh, probably mid-August or so, just as the election season starts lighting up and the vitriol starts going back and forth, the call from the scriptures is gonna be to be servants. Now, if you don't understand what that idea of being of sovereignty really is, though, let me see if I can give you an illustration that sort of paints this. One foggy night at sea, the captain of a large ship saw what seemed to be another ship heading towards his, and so he had his signalman message the other vessel by light, change your course 10 degrees to the south. The message came back almost immediately, change your course 10 degrees to the north. The captain was a little bit angered by that, and he said, tell him I am a captain, change your course. The reply came back moments later, I am a seaman, change your course. The captain at this time, he, he's getting, he's really mad at this point. He's, he's not happy at all. And so he writes back and he says, tell him, change your course, I am a battleship. To which the response came back, change your course, I am a lighthouse. <laughs> you know, when you look at how many lives are crashing on the rocks of life, you have to wonder why we don't remember who the lighthouse is. Why is it so difficult to remember that God is God and that I'm not? I mean, that's a tough one for us. I mean, the problem actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, if you remember the serpent there in Genesis chapter three, comes to Adam and Eve and tells him, look, you can be like God. You can know what God knows. You can have all the answers. The passage says, for God knows that when you eat of it, talk, it being the fruit there, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And we, we would all like that. I mean, who wouldn't want to have all of the answers and, and to be at that level? The problem is the knowledge of good and evil doesn't give me any sovereign power or right. All the knowledge of good and evil does is make it so that I can know sin and make sin known and I'll know that I did it. I know that I messed up. See, the great deception here is somehow believing that we can be like God, thinking that we should be treated as God, thinking that we should be privy to all of the answers, and that becomes a pride, a pride issue for us. Because somehow now we think, well, if I don't have the answer, well, then I'm not gonna respond to God because if God doesn't give me the answers, you know, then I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do what he wants me to do. In other words, we hold God accountable. 
Somehow we think that he has to explain everything to my satisfaction or I'm not gonna honor him. That's a problem. It's a problem because, first of all, God's already promises, again, in 1 Corinthians 13, he's not going to give you that. Right now, you look in a mirror darkly, you know, and, but there'll come a day, there'll come a day that you will know even as you're known. You'll know it all, but not right now. You know why that's the case? Because there'll come a day that I won't need faith anymore. I will look at him and it will all be known. It will all be seen. But right now, I have to have faith. And without faith, Hebrews 11 tells me it's impossible to please God. He's not gonna give me the answer right now. He's going to ask me to trust him. To walk with him. To let him guide us. The problem is, if I don't get that, if I continue to do that, my pride rises up inside of me and that becomes a problem because James chapter four, verse six says, God is opposed to the proud. You see, when it comes to who's in charge, God is the lighthouse. I need to be humble. I need to look at the creation and realize that our creator is amazing. I should consider life and our DNA and all the things that, that God has done to design it and sustain that, and it should be humbling. Humility is, is the realization that God is God and I am not. And by the way, that is a much harder, it sounds like it's simple to get, but it is much harder to grasp than you possibly can imagine. How many of you are familiar with an organization called Campus Crusade for Christ? You heard of this? Campus Crusade for years used to have this illustration. They probably still do about a life that comes, you know, to, to Christ or a life that's outside of God at first and this life, you know, portrayed by this big circle and all the different issues of life, family and work and all these things are inside of it. But inside of it, there is a chair which is supposed to represent a throne, and before you and I come to faith in Christ, we're the ones that sit on the throne of our own lives. But then you and I come hear the gospel and we respond to the gospel and we come to faith and that's supposed to change. Now I'm not supposed to be on the throne anymore. Now he's on the throne and I'm supposed to trust in him. And yet that's the battle that so many of us struggle with. Can I trust him? Why doesn't he give me the answer to this? You know, as we grow in our knowledge of who God is, we're supposed to begin to, to gather more and more truth about him as we walk through the scriptures. We learn more about his character. We learn more about the things that he's done. And our faith it tends to grow. That We start to realize that he is the center of all things. He is the author of all things, the perfecter of all things, the protector of all things, the sustainer of all things, the owner of all things, the judge of all things, and that includes me. It includes eternity. Now in Romans 9 here, verses 19 through 29, again, the context here in many ways involves the salvation history of Israel. They're wondering why you know, people have not all turned to the Lord. And so he's going to answer that question here. Follow along here as I read through Romans 9. We'll start actually with verse 18, even though Jeff finished with that last week, through verse 29. Paul writes and he says, so then 
He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Well, you say to me, why does he still find fault? I mean, who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use, another of dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and those who were not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there, there, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Pray with me as we jump into this, would you? Father, we pray that this morning as we deal with what seems to be a, a very tough passage, Lord, this is a passage that, that people at that time and people today struggle with, your control, your plan. We pray that we would see that, we would see you at work, and that we would trust in you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the first thing you see here in verses 18 through 20 is a human perspective, Again, that's why we started with verse 18 because the statement that Paul makes there in verse 18 becomes the impetus for Paul giving the question or answering the question there in verse 19. Go back to that. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So what Paul does here in verse 19 is he imagines someone bringing an objection. And the objection is this, how can God hold me guilty if it's his choice? The answer is, we're not guilty by God's choice. We're guilty by our own choices. You see, sovereignty doesn't mean God chose people to be sinful. God doesn't do that. God is holy. He is not responsible for the sinfulness of people. James chapter, chapter one, verse 13 tells us that no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Habakkuk, one, something that the Jews would have been incredibly you know, informed on and would have, would have understood completely. And Habakkuk, one, tells us that God's eyes are so pure he can't even look at sin. So what's going on here? Well, in verse 20, if you go back to that, Paul's going to answer the objector here when he says this. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? And so the first thing that he points out here really is how disrespectful a question like that is. He says, who are you to answer back to God? The statement actually, the way it's written, implies the rendering of a judgment against God. In other words, there's a group of people that somehow reached a place where he said, God, this is your fault. 
He says, Paul here then answers here in verse 20. He says, well, who are you to hold God accountable? The problem here is that verse 19's question really comes out of an ignorance of the true relationship between us and God. The truth is God is the creator of all things. And you're a part of the created, me too. We're not equals. He's the lighthouse. If God says change, it's not like I'm gonna put my foot down and change him. I change. I respond to who he is. Paul will make that very clear here in verse 21, and that's the second thing that we get to here is the prerogative and the power of God. Look what he says in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You know, verse 21 really is the crux of the issue here that mankind has struggled with for so long. We want God to act in response to us. instead of us responding to him. God, I want you to wait until I get all the facts and I decide everything and then you act, God. And that's not what the scriptures tell us. The scriptures tell us that God acts and then we respond accordingly. In fact, you know, where you can see that really carefully is in the book of Job. If, you, if you've got your Bible there, keep your finger here in Romans, Romans, and I want you to go back to the book of Job. How, the easy way to find that is just find the book of Psalms and it's the first book before Psalms. Go back to Job for a second. Go to Job 38. Job has been going through a, a horrible time. He's not happy with what's happened to him. He's not happy to the fact that God seemingly has left him to go through all of this. And then ultimately God stops in chapter 38 and answers him. God says to him, starting in verse four, he says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined the measurements? I mean, surely you know. I mean, you seem to know everything else. Who stretched out the line upon it or, or what was its basis sunk or who laid its cornerstones? In fact, if you jump over to chapter 40 and look at verse two, God here outlines the problem. He says, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then if you go to verses three and through five there in, in, in Job 40, you'll see here that, that Job begins to start realizing what he's actually doing at that point. And then Job answered God and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. It would be like you and I going, oh, I better not say anything more. But then he does. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then finally, if you go over to chapter 42, in verse two there, Job finally gets who he's dealing with here. Verse two, he says, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours will be thwarted. The truth is down through time, people have questioned that. They've always questioned God. What are you doing, God? prophets even warned us against it. Isaiah 45 verse 9 says this, Isaiah speaks and he says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Biblically a woe, when you see that word woe, biblically a woe is a judgment. 
So you could read it like this. Judgment on him who strives with God, who argues with God. Paul's response here is simple. Just as the potter has the right to make whatever he wants with the clay, so does God. And you and I need to get to the place where we trust him. God, you know more than me. You haven't given me the answers. I see your track record. I'm going to trust you. Looking for the day that you'll give me all the answers. Ultimately, the longer I wrestle with that and I allow my foolish pride to somehow kind of put me up on this level where I think I should have every answer that God could, you know, should give me everything that the serpent promised in Genesis 3, that, you know, you'll know things like God will know them. The longer I do that, it keeps me from missing out on the joy and the wonder of what God is doing in my life. And Paul here is not saying that, that God makes some people to suffer unjustly. What God does here is he takes from this one lump of clay some that will be used for honorable purposes and he leaves the rest to their own choices. It doesn't say that God makes two lumps of clay, one bad one and one good one. Look what he says here. Go to verses 22 and 23. Verse 22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. Paul's point here is that God's decisions are really not arbitrary or without purpose. In fact, he could wipe out every single person that's ever lived, all of the clay, and he'd be totally righteous. But verse 22 tells us here that he endured with patience the vessels of wrath. What he's saying here is God patiently cares for people who will never even honor him. In fact, he actually does good to them. There's a theological concept that the scriptures backed up called common grace. Common grace basically says that God is gracious to everyone. Matthew chapter five, verse 45 says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all he has made. Even people who refuse to honor him, God has a measure of goodness that he gives them that allows him to experience the wonders of this life. Someone who doesn't even know God can fall in love and enjoy that, can, can bring children into the world, can do different things you know, with their life. You know what they miss out on though? They miss out on knowing the truth of who holy, perfect God is and spending an eternity with him. Because they won't honor him. And go back to verses 22 and 23. In verse 22, it says, these, vessel, these are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's a really interesting term there. That term is a passive participle. What that means is, it means here is that God is not making someone sin and therefore destroy their own life. It means that God passively stops and takes his hands off and goes, your choice. Of course their choice is gonna be wrong. It's the same thing as Romans chapter one that tells us that God you know, gives people over to their sin. 
But if you contrast verse 22 and verse 23 here, he mentions vessels of mercy, which he has prepared. Here, God is not passive, but he's an active agent, meaning that God, in the midst of all this chaos that's going on, people making all these decisions out there, stops, and he stops, and he grabs a group of people that do not deserve mercy, and he says, I'm gonna love you. Why? I don't know. Why me? That's one of those questions that will get answered someday when we stand before him. They will become vessels of mercy. Mercy and grace are not exactly the same thing. They're alike. But mercy means that God doesn't give them what they deserve. Instead, he is gracious with them. Grace grace means God gives them what they don't deserve. Now, the third thing you see here is the patience and the people and the plan of God. Verses 25 through 29. Look at verses 25 and 26 here because Paul's gonna quote Hosea the prophet. He says here in verse 25, indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said of them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So in other words, he says, this is how sovereignty works. Those who were alienated from God in the past, the Gentiles, they will be part of those who will bring glory to God by becoming vessels of mercy, just like every other believer in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile, they will honor me with their life because I will do a work in them. Verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah the prophet. He says, not all ethnic Israel will believe. Paul here has been trying to tell them this for eight chapters so far. Just because your lineage, just because you keep the law, just because you practice circumcision does not get you into heaven. None of our religious acts do. If you look at verses 28 and 29, it tells us that God will bring judgment on the hardness of people's hearts and he will judge people's unbelief. In fact, if you look at verse 29, it will tell you that without the Lord's intervention, we would all end up becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Look what he says, verse 29, and Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, if you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, in Genesis chapter 18, God tells Abraham that he's on his way to to Sodom to destroy that, and Abraham stops and makes a great point for us to understand. He says, "Well, well, Lord, would you spare it? Would you spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there are 50 righteous? Yes. Okay, what about if there's 45? Yes. What about 40? Yes. He goes all the way down I mean, he's even, by this point, he's even like apologizing, God, I'm so sorry, but would you spare it for 10? Yes. But there weren't 10 righteous. There weren't. They had all become vessels of wrath, and so would we. Not by God's choosing, but by our sinful choices. We would be like Pharaoh. We would harden our hearts. 
without the Lord's work in our lives. I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come back and they'll join me here. Paul here is not condemning the asking of sincere questions. I don't want you to think that. That's not the case at all. What he is condemning is the spirit that thinks that God, the potter here, somehow has to justify his actions to you and me. He does not. God somehow doesn't have to explain anything to us what he does. We have to trust him. And when we don't trust him, problems follow. See, we need to be careful here not to confuse the mystery of God with a lack of fairness. Because you and I don't understand everything, that doesn't make it bad. The call here, again, is for us to trust in God. Look at his track record. Look at his care and concern that he would create all these different things for us. The beauty of all that that life has to offer, even in the midst of tragedy. The fact that he would offer his son and and let his son son come to this earth and, and go and die on a cross for you and I, the beauty of all that is just absolutely amazing. His track record is perfect. Is it good enough for me to trust? I think so. Because he's not gonna give me the answers right now. God is and only does good. If you look back there again at verse 22, he even endures with patience, he's even gracious to those who will never honor him. The term predestination, here's what it, 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 for every practical purpose, this is what it means. God loved you before you loved him. You say, well, I, yeah, but I want all the answers on that. You're not gonna get all the answers on that. Not now, not yet. There'll come a day that you'll get all of the answers completely. There'll come a day. I, I personally think that heaven is going to be a long series of, huh, okay. A lot of that. But the truth is, he hasn't told you that stuff yet. What he's asking you to do is, if you are going to trust me, I'm gonna ask you to wait and watch. Keep studying, you'll learn more about me. Now, let me ask a really important question here. How do you know if you're a part of the elect? How do you know if you're a part of God's elect? Here's the answer. Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So I guess if you trust in Jesus or not, there is your answer. You say, well, what if if you don't? What if I haven't yet? What if I have people whom I love and they have not done that yet. You keep giving them gospel. You keep sharing the truth. There's this one beautiful example of a thief hanging on the cross just before he died that that's when he came to believe. I can't tell you who is going to believe and who's not going to believe. I can't tell you when they will believe. I can tell you 
that if we keep preaching the gospel, that God has the ability to to open up hearts and minds. We just don't know who. So you keep preaching the gospel. We need to trust him. Our God is amazing beyond comprehension. He is gracious beyond belief. He is holy beyond comparison. He has no rival, no equal. He is the lighthouse. The lighthouse is calling you to trust him. Will you? You can do that right where you're at. You could begin a relationship with the God of the universe right where you're at. You don't have to go on some special pilgrimage. You don't have to do any of those things. What you do have to be convinced in your heart, I trust him. And I want to have this relationship with him. And I want to encourage you that if that's you, ask God to forgive you right where you're at, silently inside. Tell him that you trust him. Begin this new walk with him. Let him change everything. Start growing and understanding a little bit more about him every single day. Getting this greater picture of who he is and what he's done. Until one day he tells us everything. This morning we're going to be taking communion. Communion is really a very powerful way of sharing the gospel story. See, one of the things that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a powerful reminder that we believe that Jesus died and shed his blood for us. And so if you believe that, communion is for you. But let me prepare you for that. Because in verse 28, Paul writes, he said, let a person examine himself first and then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. And so I'm gonna ask you to take a moment right where you're at, a moment right where you're at and just stop and make sure your heart is right with Jesus. Would you do that? And if you need one of these and you don't have one while we're doing that, just slip your hand up and someone will bring you one of these. We'll get one into your hands. Take a moment and get right with God. Paul writes these words and he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he given thanks, he broke and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Verse 25, he says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me encourage you. If you've trusted in Christ, or you just like to have somebody pray with you because you've been struggling, there will be a group of people that will be down here at the end of our meeting that would love to be there to talk with you, love to be able to pray with you, love to be able to help you in this walk of trusting in our good God. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness to us, God. Thank you for um, your love and your care for extending your mercy to us. Teach us to trust you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The name of Jesus Christ, my king. You know the story? He's the king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. You're not on his level. None of us are. Quit fighting about that. The one thing that we can do here is trust him. Trust him. Look at his track record, he's good. I wanna encourage you this week, trust in the Lord. Watch what God does. Quit fighting with him over things. Allow him to be the king, the savior, the owner, the protector, the sustainer, all those things that he is. Allow him to be that in your life and watch what the peace of God comes over you. God bless you. Love you all.